0: Have you ever wondered how theology, apologetics, and real life come together? Join Pastor Brandon as he covers these topics in his series titled, Life's Big Questions. Here's Pastor Brandon. Go ahead and turn to John chapter 14, 15, and 16. Kind of using these chapters as sort of the basis of our study on the subject of the Holy Spirit. And just by way of introduction, you remember, um, the Holy Spirit, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, He's the third person of the Trinity, okay? You know, the Bible teaches that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God who has eternally, uh, eternally existed in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Not three gods, one God, but God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit um, is the third person then of the triune Godhead as we see this set forth in Scripture. And as such, the Holy Spirit is fully God, as is Father, as is Son, possessing the same attributes, uh, omnipresence, omnipotence, omniscience. And in all that Scripture has to say about the Holy Spirit, we see that He possesses all of the attributes of divinity. Okay? Uh, He is everywhere at the same time, He is all-powerful. He has all-knowledge. You know, there never will be something that he does not know. But he has all-knowledge, all-power, and he's everywhere present. And yet, at the same time, we also know that the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is something that's progressively revealed throughout the Scriptures. Okay, So, so you've got in Genesis 1, you see... Really, you see uh, shadows of the Trinity in just the first couple of verses of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, the earth was without form and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So there you've got God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. Look about verse 3, and God said the Word of God. And we know that God the Son, uh, Jesus Christ, is the Word. John, The Greek text used in John 1 uh, describes him as being the logos. That Greek word means uh, word or reason. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So you've got the triune nature of God that's progressively revealed throughout Scripture, and you see the Holy Spirit present And yet he's progressively revealed and most clearly revealed as we come into the New Testament. And so um, pneumatology then is that big fancy word that means the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Just like Christology is the doctrine of Jesus, who who Jesus is. um, Theology proper is the field of theology that deals with You know, the doctrine of God the Father and the attributes of God. Um, Pneumatology is the field of theology that deals specifically with the person and work of the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And it comes from that particular Greek word, uh, pneuma. N-E-U-M-A. Pneuma, same word we get the word pneumatic from. Uh, And and a pneumatic instrument or a pneumatic tool is that which is powered by air pressure. And so interestingly enough, the word pneuma translated spirit in the New Testament is also a word that means wind or breath. And so when you think of the Holy Spirit, you know, he's the wind of God, the breath of God, the presence of God. And that's, that's pretty much the Greek equivalent of a Hebrew word ruach, which means the same thing. Common word translated as spirit in the Old Testament, uh, or wind, or breath, ruach. And so why is this important? Because listen, you would not be saved today were it not for the Holy Spirit. You realize that? You know, as far as salvation is concerned, uh, God the Father planned it from eternity past. God the Son secures it and, and pays the redemptive price But God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who applies it to you personally as a believer. So you wouldn't be saved were it not not for the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's the Spirit's work to to convict you of your sin. It's the Spirit's work to regenerate you and make you alive in Jesus Christ and impart new life to you as a believer. Uh, It's the Spirit's work to... Uh, sanctify you as a believer and make you into the image of Jesus Christ. Uh, It's the Spirit who is the security of your salvation, the seal of your redemption. And on and on we could go and talk about the important role that the Spirit plays in our salvation experience. Listen to what Dr. Tony Evans, whom I love dearly, what Dr. Tony Evans says about the role of the Spirit. He says it's the distinctive role of the Spirit to make the reality of truth in the presence and power of the Godhead experiential, both in creation and in the lives of God's people. Just as electricity brings living, functional reality to appliances, the Holy Spirit animates the person and power of God in history. And so think about that. It's the Spirit of God. This is, this is what gives life to you as a believer, And when you got saved, the Spirit of God came to live within you and bring you to life spiritually. And now as a believer, you have become the temple of God. Every individual believer is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And God has made his presence to dwell in believers and collectively within the church. And so some have referred to the Holy Spirit as the shy member of the Trinity simply because it's not the Spirit's job to make much of himself, it's his job to make much of the second person of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll talk a little bit more about that here in just a few minutes. And yet we know that the Spirit of God is active and present throughout history. He's there in the pages of Scripture carrying out the sovereign purposes and the will of God. And if you and I really want to live a victorious Christian life, then we need to understand something about the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. All right, we've got to work our way through some of the mystery that surrounds him. And that's kind of what I've hoped to achieve uh, over these Wednesday nights as we're considering this, this doctrine together. Now, having said that, uh, we've already considered the person of the Holy Spirit. And I'll not go back into this very, very much, but last Wednesday night, we pretty much just considered this main point, the person of the Holy Spirit. And the fact that the Holy Spirit is a person, not a thing. And so when we refer to the Holy Spirit, we don't refer to the Holy Spirit as an it. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force, but the Holy Spirit is a he. And, and, and we're to understand him in personal terms. And so one of the foundational passages in Scripture for understanding the person, the nature, the work of the Holy Spirit uh, comes from the Gospel of John that I had you turn to. Uh, There's wonderful truth uh, in this passage of Scripture, both chapter 14, 15, and 16, uh, as it relates to who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit has come to do. So you know the context of these chapters Um, This is the upper room discourse where Jesus uh, shares truth with his disciples about his own departure, the fact that he would be leaving, but the Spirit would come. And so in John chapter 14, uh, verse number 12, Jesus says this, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Love for Jesus is tangibly demonstrated in obedience to Jesus. and yet Jesus is going to turn right around. He's going to say in chapter 15 that apart from me, you can't do a thing at all. In other words, you need his divine enabling to even obey his commands. That's why you can't live the Christian life. Are are y'all tracking with me? You can't live the Christian life. The Christian life has only been lived one time. The perfect life, Jesus lived the perfect life. Perfect in every way. When you got saved, all of his righteousness was credited to your account because he took your sin on when he died on the cross. And yet the beauty of this is that he's come to live within you as a believer through the Holy Spirit, who's come to empower you and to live through you. And so then the Christian life is a supernatural life by which it's the life of God lived in me and through me as a believer in Jesus Christ. And so this is wonderful truth that Jesus is is getting ready to explain to his disciples. Look in verse 16. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. (laughs) Counselor. Some translations say an advocate. The idea is is that of a um, paracletos one who's going to come alongside of you to empower you, to enable you. That's what Jesus is saying there. I'll ask the Father, he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you. And what? He will be in you. And Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So what a wonderful promise here. Jesus gives the disciples the assurance that even though he was leaving, they would not be left alone. There would be another divine person who would take his place in their midst, and he would be with them just as Jesus had been with them physically. And for the past three and a half years of their life, as they had left everything to follow him, uh, Jesus had been with them physically for truth, for comfort, for strength. They witnessed him do the miraculous. Jesus had been beside them. The Son of God, God incarnate, God in flesh had been beside them. And yet here he's saying that the Spirit would come and live inside them. And so essentially what he's going to say in the next couple of chapters is that the spirit who comes to live inside of you, it's much better for you that I go away. It's better that he come to live inside you than I continue to live beside you. We tend to get that backwards. We think that we'd be much better off if Jesus were beside us right now. But he tells his disciples the exact opposite. He says, it's to your advantage that I'm going away. Because if I didn't go away, then the helper couldn't come. The spirit who's come to live within you as a believer. Now let me ask you a question. Does that not just give you great confidence as a believer to know that the life of God, the Spirit of God has come to take up residence in your heart and life as a believer? That's why you will never find yourself in a situation that you're alone as a believer. Now you're going to be faced with hard decisions in life and circumstances in life but folks, God has put his presence in you. And that's something that you can be confident in. So the Holy Spirit then, he's the third person of the Trinity. We relate to him personally. He's a person, not a thing. I showed you how he was a, un- a, a real person. Uh, he was a divine or is a divine person. And he's unique And all of that we considered last Wednesday night. Now, there's a second thing that I want to consider for just a few minutes, and it's this. Let's talk about the symbols, the symbols that are associated with the Holy Spirit throughout Scripture. All right, there are some wonderful symbols, tangible symbols in the Bible that point to the Spirit's presence and his ministry, Uh, You you could sort of boil all of these down into roughly eight word pictures or eight symbols that clearly illustrate the Holy Spirit um, and what he's come to do. And some of these symbols come from the natural world. Uh, Some of these symbols come from the legal world. Even still, some of these symbols come from the domestic world. They're symbols that we can relate to, that we can identify with, but they sort of help us understand something about the Spirit's ministry and His role in our lives. So there in your notes, you've got roughly eight blanks there in in two columns, you know, so you can jot these down. I'll go through them pretty quick. Eight symbols, okay? Eight symbols that illustrate the ministry of the Spirit. Uh, First of all, clothing. Uh, Clothing, this is something that Jesus said in Luke chapter 24, verse 49, when he instructed his disciples that the Father would send the promised spirit so that they could be clothed with power from on high. And and this was something that was anticipated. It was something that was fulfilled just as Jesus had said. And so the disciples then were all powerfully enabled by the Holy Spirit to accomplish Christ's purposes. And that promise was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, uh, once the Spirit came. So so the idea then, the word picture, involves God clothing humans. God clothing us, not us clothing ourselves. And Paul picks up on some of this same imagery in Colossians chapter three. And, And so again, this explains how the apostles did what they could not do before as a result of Pentecost. Isn't it an amazing thing? Have you ever thought about just the difference that was made in, say, Simon Peter's life? You know, this coming Sunday, we're going to look at the the sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, a powerful sermon. I mean, a powerful sermon, a very brief sermon. doesn't consist of a whole lot of words. Most of his sermon consists of him quoting Scripture. There are roughly 13 verses devoted to the quotation of Scripture and then 13 verses of, of explanation and application of it. Very simple, you know. His sermon's not unlike mine. You know, there's no three points in a poem, <laughs> you know. Someone says, why is it you always preach three points in your sermons? I say, well, bless God, aren't you glad it's not 10, you know. <laughs> Could be worse. But, but here's Peter who's preaching on the day of Pentecost. He's clothed with power. There's a difference in him Say, if we were to rewind more than a month earlier, on the night of Jesus' arrest, that same Peter, he, he's, he's cowering down at a servant you know, before a servant girl in the courtyard of the high priest, denying that he even knows Jesus. What is it that made the difference in Peter's life? How he goes from denying Jesus to a few weeks later, he's Boldly standing and preaching Jesus to thousands of people. What makes the difference? The difference is that he had been clothed in power. Uh, the Spirit of God had come to empower him. It's the difference that the risen Jesus makes, it's the difference that the indwelling Spirit makes in a believer's life. So that's the first symbol. Now, this is one you're probably more familiar with the dove. Where where do you see the symbol of the dove associated with the Holy Spirit in Scripture? Exactly, the baptism of Jesus. You know, the voice from heaven declares, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And the Spirit descends upon Jesus in the form of a dove. And someone says, what does the dove then really illustrate about the Holy Spirit? Well, the dove is often a picture of innocence and blamelessness. Uh, it's really interesting to me that in the Old Testament sacrificial system, uh, even the poorest of believers, uh, a dove could be offered by those who couldn't afford, you know, a larger sacrificial animal, and it was an acceptable offering to cover for sin. And so, along those same lines, a dove is often symbolic of righteousness. And so righteousness then relates to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, one person has said it this way, the context of Christ's baptism focuses particularly on righteousness. Because the son identified his ministry as one of fulfilling all righteousness. Remember, that's what Jesus said to John the Baptist. He said, John says, why in the world are you coming to me to baptize you? And Jesus says, It's necessary in order for us to fulfill all righteousness. So it's a picture of the the, the perfect son of God who begins his ministry then as our substitute. Okay, so so a dove is a picture, uh, a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And then what about fire? We saw this one from Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. And the presence of God is symbolically illustrated by fire all throughout Scripture. Uh, Whenever the presence of God descended upon a place, he often did so in the form of fire. You know, uh, Genesis 15, he appears to Abram uh, when he makes a covenant with Abraham. Uh, He appears to him in the um, flaming torch, burning bush, Exodus chapter 3, Moses Fire that consumes the top of Mount Sinai when the law is given. And so on and on we could go. And remember Jesus, um, the Messiah, when he began his ministry, John said that when the Messiah came, he would baptize believers with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so fire is often symbolic of the manifest presence of God. Oil. Oil is another tangible symbol that illustrates so beautifully the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In both Old and New Testament, uh, anointing with oil symbolized an uh, an appointment to an important position. In the Old Testament, you had both priests, kings who were anointed with oil to their particular calling And this is the imagery that's used in the Bible to describe the Spirit's ministry to us as believers. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. It's God who establishes us with you in Christ, and he has anointed us. And then Paul continues that thought and says he's put a seal on us and given us his Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And so so oil then is also a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And then a pledge. Here are a couple of symbols that come from the legal world. The Holy Spirit's given to every believer as a guarantee or a pledge of his full salvation. Think of him in terms of a down payment that's been given uh, with a future full fulfillment in view. By the way, the Holy Spirit who's been given to you is a down payment. And folks, do you realize what you've got in store for you as a believer? You know you've got future resurrection in store for you as a believer. You know you've got an eternal home in heaven in view. That's what's awaiting you in your future. The time is coming when, you know, every tear is going to be wiped away from our eyes. The time is coming where we're going to be reunited with loved ones who've died in the Lord. The time is coming when we're going to get to see Jesus face to face. Can you imagine what that's going to be like when we live in the presence of God for all of eternity? No more sin, no more death and dying, no more pain, no more hurting, no more suffering. Well, the Holy Spirit is the pledge, the guarantee of your salvation, the down payment. And man, can you, I'm just so excited when I think about all that's in store. Well, along those same lines, he, he's also a seal. 2 Corinthians one twenty-two, uh, that same passage. God has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee or down payment. So it's the idea that my salvation then is secure. The Holy Spirit has... I'm being kept by the power of God. My salvation is secure. And the seal means that he has become our security. All right, the seventh picture or symbol would be water. Uh, John chapter 7, verse 38. Jesus said this. He said, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then verse 39 gives this explanation. He said this about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified because it was pre-Pentecost. So water then is also a beautiful symbol of the Holy Spirit. The idea is Jesus is saying, listen, when the Spirit comes uh, it's going to be like an artesian well inside of you as an individual believer that springs up to everlasting life. And that's something? The living water, he's, he's, he's come to take up residence in your heart and life as a Christian. And then, finally, wind. Numa ruach, wind, wind is a fitting symbol of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is the same imagery that Jesus used in John chapter 3 when he was explaining the ministry of the Spirit uh, in, uh, to Nicodemus. Okay, So all of these are beautiful symbols that illustrate who the Spirit is and what the Spirit has come to do in our lives. And so with that in mind, the next category of truth That I want to draw your attention to is the work of the Spirit. Considered his person, considered the symbols of the Spirit throughout Scripture, but what about his work? What is it exactly that the Spirit has come to do? What is his distinct role? You know, we know that the Bible teaches that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work inseparably, Uh, they don't act independently apart from one another. And yet they also have distinct roles. Which means that the Spirit of God has a distinct role that he serves in the Godhead. And it's the Spirit of God who carries out God's will in the world and brings it to completion. And so the Holy Spirit then is the member of the Trinity whom the Scripture most often represents as being present to do God's work in the world. Uh, Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology, uh, he points out that in the Old Testament, the presence of God was often manifest, you know, in various ways, uh, in his glory, various theophanies where he appeared in different times, in different places, different ways. In the Gospels, Jesus himself manifested the presence of God among men. But after Jesus ascended into heaven... And continuing all the way up to the present time, the Holy Spirit is now, listen, the Holy Spirit is now the manifestation of the presence of the triune God among us. Okay, he's the one who is most prominently present with us even now. So I'm gonna write another word up here on the board. Okay, Um, you know, I kind of talked last week about Arianism, that heresy, that denied the full deity of Jesus. Well, there was another heresy in his, man, alive. And you know what? I've got another marker in my bag. How about that? I come prepared. That's yes, right. Okay, so the word is modalism, okay? Someone says, what in the world is that? Modalism. Well, modalism is this view that is anti-Trinitarian in nature that basically says, well, in the past, God manifested himself as the Father. In the earthly ministry of Jesus, he manifested himself in the person of Jesus, and now he manifests himself in the person of the Holy Spirit, okay? So modalism then really denies the triune nature of God. Listen, God has always existed eternally in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, okay? So that's why modalism then is is an unbiblical view, okay? Yet at the same time, it's the Holy Spirit. We live in the age of the Spirit. It's the Spirit who's come to take up residence in our hearts and lives as believers, so, what is his work? What is he doing primarily? Well, let me give you just a few categories of things that he's doing, okay? Number one, the Spirit unites the believer to Christ. It's the Spirit who unites believers in Jesus Christ and places them into the body of Christ. You know, you go back to John 14 there. Uh, Verse 16, Jesus is saying, I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. And then down in verse 17, he says, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So this is the promise then of the Father, the Holy Spirit. And before he went to heaven and ascended to heaven, he told his disciples that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, this past Sunday morning, we looked at the first 13 verses of Acts chapter 2. And, and in that passage, we read about the arrival of the Spirit at Pentecost. That marks the beginning of the Spirit's indwelling presence. And so we talk about the baptism of the Spirit then. What is it exactly that we're talking about? Y'all know what the word baptized means, don't you? means to immerse, to dip. Uh, we Baptists like that word, don't we? You know? Uh, so, so baptize, baptizo, it's, it, it means to fully immerse. So when we talk about the baptism of the Spirit, it's, it's this truth whereby we as believers have been fully immersed into the life of God. It means that God has given you all of himself When you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you didn't get God on the installment plan. But when you got saved, you were fully immersed into the life of God. You got all of God. The Apostle Paul uses this language in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Talking about the body of Christ, the church, he says, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. says the same thing in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. In Christ Jesus, you were all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you were all one in Christ Jesus. So the baptism of the Spirit, folks, it's a spiritual reality that's true of you as a a believer. You have been fully immersed in the life of God. You have been sovereignly placed, supernaturally placed into the body of Christ. Water baptism itself is just a symbol of this spiritual reality, this spiritual truth. So... That word baptize in Paul's day, it was used to describe the process of dyeing cloth. If you wanted a piece of cloth uh, to say, to be purple, if you wanted to dye it purple, you would take that cloth and you would, you would immerse it in purple dye. And when that cloth came out of the dye, you had a different looking piece of cloth because it had been fully immersed into colored dye. And so this process then was not just an act. This was a transformation that took place. That's what the baptism of the Spirit is. It's a transformation that's taken place in your life as a believer. See, before you knew Jesus, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were outside of God. You were cut off from the life of God, alienated, alienated from the life of God. In Adam. But through the marvelous work of God in Jesus Christ. You've been reconciled to God and you've been immersed fully into the life of God through faith. Isn't that a wonderful thing how your position has now changed as a believer? You were once in the kingdom of darkness, now you've been brought over into the kingdom of light, this by the power of God and the activity of God's spirit. So that's the idea then of baptism. The baptism of the Spirit is the act of God by which believers have become identified with Christ and they're placed into his body. It happens at the moment of our conversion. And it's important you understand that because, again, I don't mean to pick, but some of our Pentecostal brothers and sisters, this is where we differ theologically. Uh, There are some who have interpreted the baptism of the Spirit uh, to be a second, a second work of grace. Something that's subsequent to salvation. And here's how they've interpreted that. They read in Acts chapter two that when the Spirit came at Pentecost, the apostles spoke in tongues And so they've associated the speaking of tongues with the baptism of the Spirit. And so in their understanding, evidence that you've been baptized in the Spirit will be that you speak in tongues. And until you've spoken in tongues, you've really not been given the Spirit. And what that does in Pentecostal circles is that it creates different tiers of Christianity. You've got those of us that are just regular folks But then you've got the super class of saints who've experienced the baptism of the Spirit because they've spoken tongues. They're the spiritual elite. Folks, that is not what happened at Pentecost. Are you listening? Pentecost was a one-time event, never to be repeated, just like Calvary was a one-time event, never to be repeated. But the thing is, it still has ongoing abiding significance. Calvary, aren't you glad that Calvary still has ongoing abiding significance? I don't have to crucify Jesus every day in order for me to be saved. Jesus Christ was crucified once for all. And, and, and he's risen from the dead and his sacrifice for sin has been accepted. His righteousness is given to my account. I'm grateful for the one-time sacrifice of my Savior upon the cross for my sins. In the same way, Pentecost doesn't have to be repeated every Sunday because we live out of the reality of what happened then. As as believers were immersed fully into the spirit. The baptism then of the spirit is something that in many ways happened at Pentecost, but personally, experientially, it happens the moment you came to faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, the filling of the spirit is different. And this is where there's a lot of confusion because a lot of people want to confuse the baptism of the Spirit with the filling of the Spirit. Okay? The filling of the Spirit. Did you know that nowhere in the New Testament are believers commanded to be baptized in the Spirit? But they are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. You say tomato, tomato. No, these are two very different doctrinal distinctions as far as the work of the Spirit is concerned, all right? The baptism of the Spirit means that the Spirit is now resident, okay? Happens when you got saved. He came to to live within you and he'll never leave. He'll never forsake. The filling of the Spirit means that the Spirit is president. Are y'all listening? I know a lot of believers where the the Spirit is resident, they've been saved. Oh, but let me tell you something. He's not necessarily president in their life, ruling in their life, leading. Which is why Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 says, don't be drunk with wine where is is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Literally, listen, it's a present imperative The Greek language there is present imperative. It could literally be translated this way. Be constantly being filled with the Spirit. In light of who you are as a believer in Jesus Christ, now yield your life. Yield your life to the one who's come to take up residence within you. The thing is, you know what? You want to know who gives me the biggest fit in life? me but God has made perfect provision for the flesh the resident helper he moved in when I got saved and he's never going to move out but see the Christian life it's a matter simply it's, it's not I but Christ Paul says I'm crucified with Christ yet I live it's not I but it's Christ who lives within me So Christian living then is a matter of surrender and yielding your life to the one who came to take up residence in you. Wow. So one baptism, it happens for every believer who gets saved, but yet there are many fillings. And by the way, just because you're filled with the Spirit yesterday don't necessarily mean you're filled with the Spirit today. That's why Romans chapter 12 says that you're to present your bodies as living sacrifices. (laughs) You know why they're living sacrifices? Because as living sacrifices, they tend to crawl off the altar from time to time. (laughs) So again, the baptism of the Spirit means that I belong to Christ's body. The filling of the Spirit means that my body belongs to Christ. The baptism means that the spirit is resident but the filling of the spirit means that he is president. The baptism is final and the filling is repeated as we submit ourselves to God. The baptism involves all other believers for it makes us one in the body of Christ and yet the filling of the spirit is personal and experiential and individual. And you remember Jesus said that the Spirit would come to indwell and empower the disciples for the sole purpose of being his witnesses. And so that's what happens at Pentecost. The Bible says they were all filled with the Spirit. And as a result of that, they began to speak in other languages, legitimate languages. You had people from all over the world who were present in Jerusalem for Pentecost, but supernaturally they heard the apostles preaching the gospel In a language that they could understand. And so the result of this then was gospel expansion. It was a supernatural, unique event because it was the birth of the church. Okay? So it's important that we understand that. So the Spirit unites the believer to Jesus Christ. I could say more, but I gotta move on. What about this? Uh, Another thing the Spirit does, He enables us in our walk. He's the helper, which means he's the enabler. Again, in John 15, Jesus tells the disciples, remain in me, abide in me. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. That's a blanket statement of inability. He doesn't say without me you can do a few things. He says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from the Spirit's work in your life as a believer, you can't become more like Christ. It's, it's his power in you that you've got to rely on. And see, sometimes I think that we often have a hard time uh, when it comes to uh, you know recruitment within the church and, and finding folks to serve. Because I think so so many times people look at their own inability. And if they're not careful, they'll begin thinking, well, I'm not strong enough to do this, and I'm not strong enough to do that. But you know something? All of our service in the body of Christ, folks, it's got to be empowered by him. He's the enabler. And so the thing is, if you feel like you're not qualified for a task, (laughs) that's your qualification right there. Feeling like you're not qualified. Because God does not call the qualified. He qualifies those whom he calls. This is the work of the Spirit who enables us in our Christian walk, in our life. Jesus says, I'm sending you a helper. I'm sending you someone who's going to come alongside you and enable you to live for me. To do what I call you to do. Another helper. That word another there, it's, it's so interesting in, in John 14 where Jesus says, I'm sending you another helper. You know, you had two words in Greek that were often translated as another. You had the word allos and you had the word heteros. Uh, the word allos means another of the same kind. The word heteros means another of a different kind. Jesus doesn't use the word heteros in John 14 when he refers to another helper. He uses the word alos. I'm sending you another of the same kind. Someone says, well, why is that important? Because listen, it means you don't get less when you get the Holy Spirit. Jesus is going away from his disciples, but that doesn't mean that they're going to be supplied with less than what they had already had. I don't know if it's okay to get blessed by your own preaching, but I'm getting blessed by my own preaching tonight. You get all of God. That's the point. He, all of himself, he's ever present with you as a believer. And this is why Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I'm going away. Because if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. And that's why God's spirit inside of you is better than Jesus beside you. One last thing. I'm going to be done with this. And we'll come back to this next week. One third work of the spirit, his purpose, really is to glorify God the Son. You look at what Jesus tells his disciples over in John 16, verse 13. He says, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. He won't speak of His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. And then listen to this Jesus says, He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Holy Spirit has one overarching goal, and it involves the glory of Jesus Christ. He advertises Jesus Christ and puts Him on display. The Spirit does not put Himself on display. The Spirit doesn't even speak on His own initiative. His number one job is to glorify Christ. Tony Evans said it this way, uh, the Holy Spirit is not here to advertise Himself. His goal is to advertise Christ and to make us as believers God's advertising agency by working in our hearts in such a way that our lives magnify the person of Christ. You see, the thing is, evidence of the Spirit of God at work in your life will be you become a billboard that points other people to Jesus. Your life will point other people to Jesus. That's the direct result of the Spirit's work in your life. It doesn't mean you're going to walk around telling everybody how Spirit-filled you are. Because remember, the Spirit didn't come to draw attention to Himself, but He came to shine the light, to keep the spotlight where the spotlight ought to be on Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever driven up I-95 into Washington, D.C. Any of you ever made that trip? You know, you're coming up I-95. A couple years ago, Anita and I were up there with my in-laws. We stayed at National Harbor. But it's always a beautiful thing when you're coming into D.C. at night and you're crossing the Potomac on 95. It may be 495, I'm not sure. But you're able to look back. You know, as you're crossing the Potomac, you're getting ready to, I guess, cross into Maryland. You're able to look back and you see uh, across the Potomac, you you can see the Capitol Dome in the distance and it's all lit up. And if you pay close attention, you can see the Washington Monument. And it's all lit up. And you, know, you see that, just that, that, that big white uh, needle just shining in the night sky. Do you know that hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of lights shine directly on that monument? Well, the government's got, government's got money to spare, so we've got hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of lights that light up that monument. Now here's the thing. I bet not a single one of you have ever thought about those lights. I bet you've never even been tempted to want to take a picture of those lights at night. Because nobody's talking about the lights. They're looking at the monument that the light illuminates. J.I. Packer says that's what the Spirit of God has come to do. He's come to shine the spotlight on the glory and the majesty of the Son of God. And evidence that you're a spirit filled believer, my friend, will be, again, you'll be a Jesus person. Pointing people to Him, sharing the gospel, a life saturated in the Word. Would you stand with me as we pray tonight? We'll come back to a few other points next Wednesday night, but Lord, in Jesus' name, we're so thankful. For the presence and the ministry of your Holy Spirit, who's come to live within us and indwell us as the people of God. Lord, thank you for the spiritual reality. It's true of us as believers that we've been immersed fully into the life of God. And Lord, that you've given us all of yourself. And Lord, may we as believers be filled with the Spirit and give you all of ourselves as living sacrifices. May each one of us, Lord, be billboards that point other people to the hope of Jesus Christ and to the gospel, because this will be the Spirit's work in our lives. Thank you that we've been given a comforter. Thank you that we've been given a resident helper. And no matter the trial and no matter the circumstance that we will face this week, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because he's with me in the person of his spirit. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.